Rebecca was doing something that I've noticed over the years in helping other people have dialogue about race, particularly other white people, is that constant questioning. Because when we spend so much time thinking about the right language to use, the right jargon, the right definitions, which is where everybody always wants to start. Just tell me what to say. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to act. That's not relational, (laughs) you know? And so then we get so um, fixated on doing what we think is the right thing, that we aren't building relationships. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, Danae here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I know many of you are knee deep in the holiday season. Today, I have a conversation about interracial friendship which may seem like a heavy or complex topic to some people. However, Christine Platt and Catherine Wigginton-Green have made it light and approachable in their new novel, Rebecca Not Becky. So often I have nonfiction authors on the show and they teach us so much, but the lessons learned through diving deeper into the life experiences of fictional characters can be so rich. So while this book was definitely a fun read, it was one that brought about a lot of reflection as well. And in my chat with Christine and Catherine, we're talking about that today. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to bring you a one-minute word from our sponsor, PrepDish. If you are looking for a last-minute holiday gift that is clutter-free, consider PrepDish. PrepDish is a meal planning service, so they're not sending you any food. They're simply sending you a PDF in your inbox each week. And that PDF is strategically broken down to have three different parts. The first is the ingredient list, so you know what you need to buy. You can put all those items right into your shopping cart online if that's how you do it. The next part is prep day, so you can prep in advance as much as possible. You can time this up to do it when your partner's home or when you have extra support. That way, when you get to step three, which is dish day, it's quick and easy to actually get the food on the table. Prep dish has taken so much stress out of the dinnertime hustle. If you want to try it out, get two weeks free at prepdish.com forward slash families. That's prepdish.com forward slash families. Back to my episode for today. You may recognize Christine. She has been on the podcast before to talk about her last book, The Afro-Minimalist. Catherine is new to the show. She is also a writer, producer, and director. I think you're going to love hearing from them. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Christine. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Thank you. Glad to be here. I really enjoyed your book, and I want to start by asking you the hardest question of all. Tell me about yourselves. Who are you? <laughs> Catherine, you can go. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Um, yeah. All right. So I am um, a mom and a wife and um, a stepmother, and um, I, I live in Washington, D.C. with Christine. No, I don't live with her, right? <laughs> yeah. We both live in the city. We're not in. Yeah. Sister wives. Although we did feel like we were sister wives sometimes, right? Writing the book, <laughs> being sure, together a lot. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have been working um, as a journalist and documentary filmmaker and educator 
uh, for about 18 years. And all of the uh, work I've done focuses on strengthening human connection and, uh, and thinking about identity. And um, then with my recent documentary film, not even, it's not that recent, but the one that I made the um, about eight years ago, I'm not racist, am I? Um, I started taking that around the country filming um, or I filmed the, I made the film and then led dialogue about the film when I screened it in various communities across the country. And um, that, is actually what started to inform the work that Christine and I did together, which was leading anti-racist workshops and um, having conversations about dialogue. So I work in a lot of different platforms and genres, whether it's stage and sketch comedy or documentary films or creating uh, educational workshops, writing curriculum, um, and then writing the novel. All of it is centered around strengthening human connection and understanding. And so that's, that's, that's that. I'm getting my doctorate, I have the novel, and I do a lot of educational consulting. Great. And uh, I'm Christine. Uh, good to be back. Good to see you again. Um, I am an author and an advocate, also known as the Afro minimalist. Um, and, you know, sort of work at this intersection of history of the African diaspora, um, telling our stories, telling our narratives, whether it's from the past, whether it's present, like in Rebecca, not Becky. Or in future, I also do um, enjoy writing speculative fiction and Afrofuturism work. Um, I also serve as the executive director for Jacqueline Woodson's um, nonprofit residency, uh, which is called Baldwin for the Arts. Um, and so, again, just uh, really focusing on capturing um, the narratives, the stories, the artistic works of people of the global majority. That's what we do at Baldwin for the Arts. Um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much who I am. Also a mom. Um, my daughter's in college now, which is bananas. Um, and she is a junior uh, at Penn State music major. And I'm just incredibly proud of her. And uh, yeah, that's who I am. Great. Well, thank you. So tell me a little bit about how this book was born. Ah, this book. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start, you know, in 2020, the world was just pretty much on fire. And people just kept saying and asking, like, how did we get here? How did we get here? And as a historian, that's always one of my favorite questions, right? Um, because I, I understand that, that that's usually the, the missing link and key for a lot of people, right? Knowing the history of this country, knowing the history of systemic racism, um, it really is, I think, that first step to when we talk about doing the work, that's what that is. And at the time, I was having a lot of conversations with my agent about this. And that is really how the initial um, idea for the book was birthed. Um, but, you know, my schedule was swamped at the time. I was working on Afro Minimalist. And I told my agent, like, I just don't have time. I just don't have time. I don't have time to write it. And so it was actually her idea um, to co-author the book. And the minute she made that suggestion, I immediately thought of Catherine. I was like, I know who I would co-author this book with. Yeah. So I was secretly hoping this was part memoir and you actually lived this story, the two of you. Well, but... yeah, yeah, a little bit. We'll, In we'll, pieces. We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get okay. to that. Catherine, what do you, what do you want to add? Because like, yeah, I, I feel I'm, like yeah. I came to you, right? It was a little tricky. I came to you with this idea. Um, and honestly, I feel like 
after we flushed it out, the only thing that remained was the title. So I'd love for you to also share your experience about how we co-created this. Yeah, I was so excited to do this because what we were witnessing in the wake of George Floyd was this collective urgency uh, for people who were new to the conversation and new to the analysis to um, really do a crash course in racism. Um, And, you know, we were concerned with it. Uh, that's not going to save us. Um, We noticed a lot of things happening online, on social media, where someone would post a photo with a book uh, about anti-racism and then within sound bites and, you know, the limited amount of characters or the images that you can use on social media, we'd try and then teach other people and tell other people what to do. And there was just all this going on and swirling around. And I just really wondered, you know, and talking with Christine, thinking, you know, how could we approach this differently? Um, not not necessarily change the conversation because a lot of the conversation that was happening at that time was really important and we welcomed new people to the movement. I mean, I I mentioned the documentary that I made, um, I said eight years ago earlier, but it was actually 10 years ago and I'd been screening that for so long. But prior to that, I'd been making films on adoption and college application processes. And so just really having these conversations for years and doing this work and thought, well, you know, that's all important, but what if we could maybe also poke a bit of fun at ourselves um, and bring some humor and levity into this and and really call attention to the absurdity of the performance of racism, um, especially in the context of a wealthy, predominantly white suburb like Rolling Hills, which is where the book is based. So that was sort of how I entered into it. I was really excited to help just change the conversation a little bit and add to it. Yeah, there were certain parts of Rebecca that really resonated with me as a white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing about Rebecca is that she's in her head a lot about this friendship or about this potential friendship. She spends a lot of time analyzing every comment that she makes, looking for mistakes, looking for um, looking for problematic things that she might have said. And that really got me thinking about how this move towards anti-racism may actually get in the way of the relationship building Mm -hmm. and how we, how do we reconcile that when it's, it almost seems like Rebecca is having a hard time just kind of naturally building a relationship with Andrea because she's so in her head analyzing every single little piece of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so glad you picked that up because that was a big part for us. Like we wanted these characters to, be very authentic, right? Like we, when Catherine was saying like, oh, we wanted to do something differently. Like, you know, part of storytelling and novel writing is, you know, it's showing and telling, right? But I think with this topic in particular, we didn't want to sound too preachy, you know what I mean? And so we thought it was really important to develop the characters so that you you did see yourself, right? And you were able to see yourself in that way. Um, and I know Catherine had a, a very um, pointed and very disciplined and, and sort of structured approach to Rebecca, you know, sort of later in the process. But both of us, we found ourselves just like really having to flush out these characters, right? And so... Um, Catherine, I'd love for you to talk about how you fleshed out Rebecca, and then I can sort of share um, how DeAndrea came about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also love that you picked up on this this aspect of Rebecca being in her head so much and how that can interfere. And that, I think, is what is driven by what is happening when we get all of our information um, 
from social media or even reading. So, I mean, we can, we want people to read these books on anti-racism and read about the history and analysis of structural racism in the United States. Uh, but what happens is when we only do that and we're really siloed in learning, uh, it's the meaning making and the building community together that actually makes this all work and how we move toward progress and change the way that we're, um, you know, showing up for one another. And so Rebecca was doing something that I've noticed over the years in helping other people have dialogue about race, particularly other white people, is that constant questioning. Because when we spend so much time thinking about the right language to use, the right jargon, the right definitions, which is where everybody always wants to start, just tell me what to say, tell me what to do, tell me how to act. That's not relational, <laughs> you know? And so then we get so um, fixated on doing what we think is the right thing that we aren't building relationships. And so at first, when I was working through Rebecca and thinking through who she was as a person, I started off as, you know, writing her as a caricature. And a lot of that was informed by things that I had done in my past that I was embarrassed about in my own racial identity development as a white person and conversations I'd had over the years. And so uh, it was almost making fun of her um, and, and that was early versions. And then as we would go through drafts and more drafts and more drafts, um, starting to really flesh her out as someone who actually wanted to do the right thing and was so influenced by what she was reading all around her and wanting to do the right thing. Um, and then often not because she wasn't thinking about how others were reacting, um, to, to her and, and not thinking about Diana as a, a, a Deandria as a fully fleshed out human being as well, right? Because when you only spend time thinking about the jargon and the definitions and the analysis and, and only remain there, then she was only seeing Deandria as a black woman first, right? Someone who could fulfill this need she had for diversity in her life or this, this desire she had. And then that led to also thinking, you know, through who Deandria was. Um, and so I'll pass it over to Christine. On that <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think, um, you know, I came in really with this idea of Deandria just saying, like, I really want to show the lives of Black women authentically and holistically. I think so often in literature, we uh, become a part of this trope, right? And so I really wanted to show Deandria as how myself and my friends, right? Like, you know, these are, these are not just conversations that I've pulled out of thin air, <laughs> right? Or sort of sentiments and things that I've pulled out of thin air. These are things that I've overheard. These are things that, you know, folks have said to me, these are experiences that I have had, right? And I think um, with Deandria wanting to show, um, you know, the marriage dynamic between her and her husband, um, you know, and Catherine, thank you for helping me <laughs> sort of fix that a little bit. I mean, because there, there is a tendency sometimes, I think, when you have something in mind for the character to lean and go too far. So initially, Deandrea, um, you know, and her husband, their marriage was perfect. And, you know, so much like Catherine, it, it did take some time for me to flush her out as a character. But I went in saying, like, you know, I want to really show her authentically and holistically. And that meant also showing the dynamics of womanhood authentically and holistically. And, and you know, ultimately that is where Deandria and Rebecca find themselves 
meeting in the middle, right? Like at the end of the day, they're both women who are navigating this very complex life and world, um, you know, where race is a part of the equation, right? But at the end of the day, they're, they're women, they're mothers, they are family members, they're friends, right? They're dealing with all of the complications and challenges that we face every day, right? And then how much more complicated does that become when we factor in race, when we factor in being in a being a, an, an old, you know the only black family in a predominantly white suburb, how does that also weigh on who she is? How does that bring up some of her past? Right, like these are threads that we explored um, throughout the narrative, and I think that's what led to the character development for both of them. And we love hearing, you know, folks saying, "I saw myself in this character." I had cringe moments, <laughs> right? Like, oh my God, I've said that, right? And and I think it's important to note that's not just for, um, you know, white readers. We we've heard that from black readers, even most recently at our at our book launch, right? And and that's when we're like, you know what, Catherine? Like, we we did it, you know? Like, that's what we set out to do. So, thank you so much for sharing that with us. We're going to pause for a one-minute word from today's sponsor, Masterclass. Masterclass is one of my very favorite clutter-free last-minute holiday gifts if you have a lifelong learner in your family, for you and really anyone on your list. It's like Masterclass instructors are your own personal mentors. They're going to help you reach the next level. One that I'm really enjoying right now is a shorter Masterclass by Amy Poehler, Prepare to be Unprepared. It's more or less about the art of improv techniques that she uses. This fascinates me because improv might be my worst nightmare. So preparing to be unprepared is something that definitely intrigues me. So this holiday season, give one annual membership and get one free at masterclass.com families. That's right. You can actually buy a membership for yourself and give another one for free. Right now, you get two memberships for the price of one at masterclass.com forward slash families. Masterclass.com forward slash families. Offer terms apply. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back to our episode. This actually, um, reading this book helped me to reflect back on interracial relationships that I've had throughout mm -hmm. my life and thinking back to like my early 20s. And when I was in my early 20s, I fresh out of grad school as a social worker, I was working in a predominantly black organization. And I had a lot of friends of all different races, but a lot of black friends that I made at work. And at that time, it didn't feel as complicated in my head as it does now, as I said with Rebecca, how I relate to her as I've read so many anti-racist books in the past years since 2020, since I joined that conversation and started learning that now I feel a lot more intimidated about the idea of making a new friend of a different race, because I do think I'm going to be in my head about it versus when I was 22, I probably messed up a lot and I probably committed a lot of microaggressions, but in a way it felt more natural to have those relationships at that time before I had the information. So now I'm trying to reconcile now that I have all of this information, how do I continue to make authentic relationships 
in, oh. without, I don't know, give me some input. Help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love what you're saying because it really gets to the heart of this. I mean, you know, we, we, in this world of talking about anti-racism and anti-bias, we, there's, uh, you know, a, a joke about when people say like, oh, some of my best friends are black, right? As if that is an, uh, um, a signal that, oh, I can't be racist. Yeah. And yet a lot of research tells us that when we are in, within proximity to one another of lots of different groups of people, that it does actually reduce our bias. Now, that does not mean that we are making the right structural decisions and policy decisions and things like that. So it's not enough, but it is part of it. And so I love what you're saying about when you actually were, you know, you're working, you're doing the thing, you're, um, you have friends from lots of different backgrounds and you're just doing it and probably messing up. And that's what we do in friendship anyway. We mm -hmm. often step on each other's toes. We say things we don't mean. We say things in the heat of the moment. Um, we hurt people's feelings unintentionally. They tell us about it. We go back and forth. And uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Liza Toulousen, who was in my documentary and, and has a book out called The Identity Conscious Educator um, and is working on a book about the identity conscious parent, she talks a lot about how this is really about being able to recover more quickly. So yeah, we're if we stay only in our head, then we are always second guessing ourselves and we're actually not showing up for our friendships and the people in our lives because we're just thinking that every little thing we do is going to mess up. And then we miss the fact that like Rebecca does, DeAndre is lonely. She has moved to the city by herself. She's caring for her mother-in-law. Her husband mm -hmm. travels all the time. She has a young child. She's brand new to the community. She needs friends. She needs people to, to help her out and show up for her. And if Rebecca just stays in her head with like, ooh, I want to have a black friend or what if I mess up or what if I get her name wrong again? You know, she obsesses about yeah. all of this. Well, then she's actually not being a good friend, you know? Yeah. 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 And I think likewise with DeAndrea, um, she obviously is in Rolling Hills and has made a preconceived, I would say, again, like a lot of lot of black folks do, right? We it's based on our lived experiences, right? And so that reflection is a part of that, right? Uh, you know, her lived experiences taught her you cannot trust white women, right? And like at the end of the day, we just had to say that's what it was, right? And then show how does that inform the relationships that she has to build in this new town, right? Like if you are mistrusting, like none of us want to be thought of as a monolith, right? And so this idea that all white women are one way or all black women are one way, right? Like that is also what we wanted to challenge through this narrative because the only way to sort of have these interracial friendships that are healthy is to be honest and have these honest conversations with each other right and mm -hmm. adding some levity to it sometimes right and I mean I obviously the more you get to know folks in your community and village you know you're able to you know there are things that Catherine and I can say to each other you know after building years of an interracial friendship that we would not expect someone to say <laughs> you know mm -hmm. upon first blush right but um we really wanted to show what it looks like sort of navigating those murky waters, right? Of like, man, my therapist keeps saying, you're in a new town, you're in a new city, you're a mom, you have to make friends. It's great you have your Black girlfriends that you've had all your life back home, but they're not there, right? And to sort of challenge herself um, to say, man, I'm really gonna have to make a white friend. Hmm. 
Yes. And especially this woman, right, Rebecca, who she had labeled so strongly. Yeah, but, you know, she she had labeled all of them right out the blush, right? Like, oh, there are Mm -hmm. only going to be Beckys and Karens there, right? Mm -hmm. And so how does that inform her relationship with the white women that she runs into? She sees them all as Karens and Beckys. Sure, there are Karens and Beckys, (laughs) right? Just as there are DeAndreas everywhere, right? But, you know, we want... We wanted to show what it looked like when you have to navigate this space, right? Otherwise, you are going to be in isolation. You're going to be depressed. And she might miss out on an opportunity to form a really meaningful friendship, right? And right. so, um, yeah, we tried We tried to show that um, with, both, with both characters. So I hope you saw that. I hope that came across. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that was helpful for me to learn from both of them to kind of hearing it from both perspectives was so interesting and helpful for me. Oh yeah. No, I was thinking too, that um, with what Christine was saying, it made me think of just how limiting that could be for our children as well. When we're thinking about, you know, we want our kids to have meaningful relationships and to have play dates and sleepovers and, and, and feel accepted and, and belong in their, in their school communities and have friendships. And so when we have those limitations as well about the other moms around us, then that can also prevent our children from building meaningful relationships. And I think both women, you know, ultimately were, were motivated by that as well. And, and Christine and I talked a lot about how, I mean, just as a practical matter, DeAndrea moving there, she was going, you know, as a mom, you have to be able to have relationships with the other parents in the community to, to have someone pick up your kid from school someday when you can't make it, right? We have these emergencies. And so we we need community. Community is everything, especially, I mean, for all of us, but in a very specific way when we are parents raising young kids. Yeah, yeah. You know, and thinking about how the kids play into all of this, I recently saw in a local parents group online, um, there was conversation about in the bathroom at one of the schools, a child had drawn a swastika in one of the stalls and they don't know who it was, but they found the swastika and the parents' reactions in the commentary, these were people in my local community, were really tearing apart the child's parents, the child who drew Mm. the swastika. Like what kind of parents could have raised a kid like this? What were they doing at home? And that feels very scary to me because when I'm thinking about, I mean, my kids are only seven, actually my son just turned 10, seven and 10 now. And they're already doing stuff that I didn't teach them and that I wish they wouldn't do or saying things I wish they wouldn't have said. And when things come up, especially regarding racism and our kids, do you have any thoughts on, you know, um, what they can teach us and what we can teach them as we come across challenging incidents like this? Yeah. I mean, I will say we actually, there's a a friend that we have who wrote a book called Raising Anti-Racist Kids, Britt Hawthorne. And she talks Mm -hmm. about this very specifically that uh, that I love, which is these pre-racist moments. So when we're talking about young kids, um, you know, they're just one, first of all, they're picking up on things they see all around the world, not only in the home um, and from their own parents, but there are messages around us, implicit and explicit, that are you know, informing the way that children see the world. And so we do have to be very explicit about counteracting that. And they're also trying out new things. They don't know what this stuff means. And so these are all learning opportunities. And it's really important to see it as a learning opportunity and not attack one another or the parents of these kids um, when this happens, because that's when we have a very 
special and critical moment to invite them in and have a conversation and model things and not judge and say, okay, let's talk about the history of this symbol. Let's talk about how it makes other people feel when they see it and what it reminds them of and what it conjures up and have that conversation rather than judging the parenting or any of those things, because that's the moment we have where we can, we can course correct. It's like, I remember when I heard Britt talk about this, it reminded me of when people are diagnosed with pre-diabetes. You know, it's so good to know that you have these markers that maybe you're on this path toward this, but you can interrupt it and course correct before things get really, really um, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I would, the only thing I would add too, is that you know, we want parents to also remember that they are bringing their own lived experiences, their own childhood lived experiences, um, you know, to um, these moments, right? And so that is something that we also tried to show in the book, right? Which is, and and I think this is particularly, um, you know, an important consideration for people of color, right? For people of the global majority, you know, I grew up in the deep South, the relationships that I had with white children are so different from what my daughter's experiences are and have been right. And so sometimes a lot of that pause, a lot of that hesitation, Mm -hmm. a lot of that fear is coming from what we experienced, right. And to have to constantly challenge ourselves and say, the world is different now. It is not the world that we want, that's the world, you know, we're working towards, we're constantly working towards, you know, bettering the world and, and the, you know, the world that our children and our grandchildren will inherit. But at the same time, it is so different, right? It is Mm -hmm. so different. And so I have to step back. I have to pause and say, what about this am I bringing to the table, right? Am I remembering when I first saw swastika drawn in the bathroom and what happened and what, you know what I mean? Like we, we have to, if we want to talk about like this intergenerational work and healing, that is a part of the conversation, remembering that we are bringing our own preconceived notions and lived experiences to these moments. Yeah. I cannot recall what year it was that the Washington Redskins turned into the Washington commanders, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it was like 2021 maybe. So my, my husband has been a lifelong Redskins now commanders fan. Mm -hmm. And um, around the time that that change was being made, there was a lot of conversation about that in our house. And um, my daughter, and this was also around the time that we started educating our kids about racism Mm -hmm. more actively. And um, my daughter started referring to, black people as the black skins. And I think that she was only five years old. And I think this was kind of coming from like the red skins. Right. And it took a long time and a lot of course correction to get her to stop saying mm-hmm. this. Um, and she would say it in public. She would say it just kind of randomly talk about the black skins and as, as the black people, the black skins. And um, that was so to hear her say that was so triggering and embarrassing mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. But I tried not to react because I think she was she was being descriptive in a way and but trying to correct at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um do you have any tips for parents who encounter things like this with their kids where they, you know, you don't want to be horrified, but at the same time you want to you want to correct and guide? Yeah, sure. Catherine, you want to jump in? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm cracking up. First of all, I'm sorry for your husband and his uh, life choices I know. his football team. Right, right. So am I. So am I. Right. It's quite tragic um, year after year. <laughs> um, but oh my gosh. I mean, that was bringing up so many memories for me too. Uh, on the football note, I remember we had a game on once and when one of my daughters was, I think she was four years old and she looked at the the TV and the game going on and she said, oh, I like the white men better. I want the white men to win and beat the black men. And we were like, yeah. oh my God, what is she talking about? And then I realized, <laughs> oh, she's she's talking about the jersey colors, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but that is not where I went and I spiraled. I mean, right. I went I, into a history of structural racism in America. <laughs> and um, and then you sort of pause and you're like, oh, oh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I think what you did was was perfect in talking with your daughter of trying not to react too much because the really it's just about asking questions i remember when i first came into a consciousness about race and and whiteness and things like this and it was probably about 15 years ago that i started to really dig into it more and at that moment i wanted to teach everybody about it right i wanted to spread the word and sort of a um a kind of a an evangelical fervor around it and um and then realizing that that wasn't actually effective and it wasn't until i made the documentary um i'm not racist am i where i followed a group of teenagers through a year long exploration of race and my job was to document their experience i wasn't there to teach anybody and i just had to go along with them and ask them questions about oh where did you get that idea from or why do you think that or or how did that affect you that i realized how effective that approach is in talking about these issues um, with everybody of all ages of just starting to ask questions and finding it out so that if i had paused with my daughter who said she was rooting for the white men over the black men <laughs> and just said for a minute oh well tell me tell me about that. Why do you like them better? Then she would have said, oh, I really like the color of their jerseys. And then that would have saved us all a lot of time (laughs) Um, (laughs) and angst. And so that's, that's a big recommendation that I make for people when they're having these conversations with their, their children, um, because they will react to where we go. And I, I liken it to the sex conversation that when, uh, you know, the, the advice I think, and maybe you can tell me better, Danae, <laughs> um, but I always found that uh, the prevailing wisdom right now is when your children start asking about, you know, where babies come from and how babies are made, you don't need to go necessarily when they're four or five years old into the whole explanation of all of it. You answer the question that they have asked because then usually they, they move on. And I realized that also with my kids when they were young, when they would start asking questions about race or skin color or things like that, that I would feel like I had to over explain and go into a lot and really just they would have already moved on to something else and so developmentally you know we, we answer the questions that are asked we get curious about their perspective and how they see the world and it's actually really cool to hear from them and see what they're see what they're seeing you know and I think you know it's the same thing about letting the uh the air out of the bubble slowly right I think you know as we were, we're all saying like this tendency to just want to pop it and you know just jump right in it's almost a bit it's just too much. Right. And so, you know, a big part of our lived experiences is having the talk. We all remember when our parents had the talk with us, right. Which is, oh man, now I'm going to have to have this uncomfortable conversation with you and let you know that the world sees you differently just because of the color of your skin. Right. And here's how you're going to have to move and here's how you're going to have to navigate it. Right. And like to have that conversation with a five-year-old right? Who literally has no idea what you're talking about, <laughs> right? Is like, how, how can we make our, um, you know, our identities 
be something that is celebrated, cherished, respected, right? But not put this weighted heaviness to it, right? I think there's such beauty um, in the complexities of our history, right? But if we start out teaching it through this lens of trauma, through this lens of horror, instead of through lenses of joy, this is where we start to have this struggle, right? Not only internally, but also externally. This is where we start to have resentment. This is right. And so like, I think it's so important to give age appropriate conversations and explanations. Yeah, I love what you're saying. And I'm, I'm picking up on one piece in particular that I wanted to add to, which is that like thinking really intentionally about the fact that these are all human beings in the room first. Um, and I don't mean to say that, that, you know, oh, we're all the same because we're not and we're not having the same experiences and race certainly affects the way that we move through the world. But when we're all only in our head and worrying about if what we say might um, be the wrong thing, then we are ignoring what Christine said, which is like, there might be people in there who are also really nervous. They, they've never been in this kind of setting before. They need help. They also want to learn. And so remembering the humanity of everybody, I think is, is really important. And, you know, I wanted to add something else, which is that for many, many years, particularly when I had first started um, doing this work, there was a lot of discourse around like being colorblind, you know, and people saying like, I don't see race. And, and of course, I understand that the intention behind that is I want to communicate to you that I don't place value on people because of their race. I don't, I don't subscribe to this hierarchy. That's what people meant. But when we didn't explain it that way, and the response was like, well, if you're saying you don't see race, then you're not seeing people of color. And so the antidote for people who were, you know, well-intentioned, who were white was, okay, I'm going to see race everywhere then. I'm going to lead with race because I want you to know that I'm not ignoring your race and I know you've had these experiences. And it's laying a lot of expectations and assumptions on somebody because of that. And so we're talking about maybe we do something kind of in the middle here, um, it, the in-between of ignoring race and making everything about race. How do we make sure we are reminding one another we are humans, having very uh, similar shared experiences about belonging and 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 being scared and wanting connection and we don't ignore race yeah yeah i was gonna say that's really what rebecca not becky is all about right showing our lived experiences our unique and shared lived experiences right we're talking about motherhood we're talking about friendship we're talking about sisterhood we're talking about marriage right i mean some of the friends are single we'll we're, like we weave in all of these different narratives and we don't ignore race, right? And that is essentially what the work is, right? Like we don't don't ignore the fact that this part of my identity informs how I live, informs how I move through the world, informs my experiences, informs my cultural and generational, um, you know, narratives and challenge. Just don't ignore that, right? Respect that, honor that, right? Be curious and want to know more about that. And in doing so, you're being curious and wanting to know more about me, right? Right, right. And it comes back to that core piece of relationship building that is the most important thing, maybe, would you say? I mean, I would, Catherine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, even when we're talking about changing systems and policies and practices and structures to be more equitable we have to work together and have conversations about that. And so if we can't do that, then we actually can't make progress. 
Yeah. And this work has always been collaborative work, right? I mean, I, you know, I think one of the things, you know, going back to, I guess, how this novel was birthed, right? This idea that everything just started in 2020 or everything just started with, you know, this one conversation around anti-racism is just, you know, not true, right? Like this work has been going on since the founding of this country. It has always been collaborative work. It has always required all of us to move the ball forward, right? And that is where where we are now in our journey, right? That is the work that we're doing, right? When our time has come, right? So we are the goal and hope is that someone will pick up that ball and keep moving us further and further along, right? So it's it's going to require all of us. It always has. It always will, right? And I think knowing how we want to show up in our homes, for ourselves, and then for our communities and thereby the rest of the world, that is our work. You know, like when we say do the work, do the work, that is the work, you know? I love that. Thank you so much, Christine and Catherine. It's been so great having you here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And we can find Rebecca, not Becky, in all bookstores anywhere online. Yes. 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 You Great. can find Rebecca, not Becky, wherever books are <laughs> sold uh, in bookstores or indie bookstores, libraries. We love libraries. Um, it's an audio. It's everywhere. And we hope people really enjoy reading it as, as much as we enjoyed writing it. I know I have. Yes. And then talking about it with each other, right? That's where yes. we want the the real work to happen is read it, do it with your book clubs, do it together, and then and then talk about it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Christine and Catherine. You'll find the links to get in touch with them and to find their books and their information in the show notes. I hope you have a wonderful, safe holiday season, and I look forward to chatting with you in the new year.